Vestal, New York, March 16, 1986. Address to Christians by Brother Bruce Conrad. Had upon my heart to take up in a series of meetings different aspects or different ways in which all of the Lord's people might be viewed. In Numbers, we read about the Lord's people there. Of course, it was the children of Israel, us in type. We're looked upon, all of them, each of us, as warriors, and then later on as workers, and finally as worshipers. Now, with the Israelites, not all of the Israelites were each of those things, uh, but uh, all of us are, each one of us, each of those things. All of us are in a spiritual warfare, even if you're a, a young Christian, still uh, uh, six or five or whatever age you are, or the oldest one here knows full well that they're in a, a scene of spiritual warfare. And we spoke about the warfare that the Lord Jesus accomplished on the cross when he single-handedly, when he uh, alone uh, went uh, to the cross of Calvary willingly and he laid down his life there that all who would believe in him uh, would have the forgiveness of sins and be able to go to the Father's house as his own children. And then we spoke about the warfare that we all experience within us. And we read about how the flesh wars against the spirit. And the tendency of that warfare is that we might not be able to do or that we might not do the things that we would. And even the young children, I'm sure, have had the experience, those that are Christians, of knowing what mom and dad or knowing what the Lord Jesus would have us to do. And yet uh, feeling a, a sort of a tug and a warfare that goes on within as the flesh wars against the spirit. And then there's that warfare in the broader sense where we read about how that there is a warfare going on all around us where Satan, who is the God and the prince of this world, uh, seeks to uh, hinder and to dishonor the Lord Jesus uh, through his own people and to keep the eyes uh, of those who are still uh, dead in trespasses and sins, keep their eyes closed to the glory that awaits all those who trust in Christ. And so there's a warfare. And by, dis by uh, taking up these things in order, I don't mean to, to set them apart so distinctly, I was thinking in uh, reading in 1 Corinthians, and perhaps we'll get to it, how you read there in one of the chapters about how the trumpet has to give a certain sound uh, so that the, uh, the warriors, uh, so to speak, know how to prepare themselves for battle. So you might take that up in, uh, in the line of uh, ministry, but then again, it has to do with warfare. And then again, when you take up priesthood, you see that the priests were really the ones who had an important part in the, in the leadership when the children of Israel went forth uh, to fight the Lord's battles. And so, uh, Lord willing, for the next uh, little while, I'd like to take up the subject of ministry or service. And each one of us is in the Christian ministry. And, you know, the reason I feel this is so timely is that uh, the invitations that we've been getting lately uh, to come together in general meetings or conferences, you know, almost invariably... There's at least a paragraph in those uh, invitations expressing the exercise of the local brethren in that area that the ministry would be suitable and proper. There's a real exercise and a concern even expressed in the letter that didn't used to always be there, to my judgment. There's a concern now, and there's a reason for that. In some of the periodicals that some of our brethren have been publishing, I know I got one recently, perhaps you did too, uh, Brother Allen's uh, publication, there's been a series of articles, though I haven't read them all there. And it's a subject of discussion and exercise and concern, and, and well it should be. And so I'd like to start by reading in 1 Peter chapter 4. I'd first like to, to read a few passages here and there, 
and then walk through in a little more detail, if the Lord permits, the three different uh, major passages in the New Testament where we read about service and ministry and gift and what they are and how they function and those kinds of things. In 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 10, as every man, and little ones, you know, when you read man, sometimes you could say as every person, as every person, as every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Let's read another passage real quick in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 12. First Corinthians 12 and verse 6. And there are diversities of operations, but it is the same God which worketh all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit withal. Or we might say the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man for collective profit. And now let's turn over to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians 6 and verse 3 For if a man think himself to be something when he is nothing he deceiveth himself but let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For every man shall bear his own burden. I think these several passages make it plain that in the eye of God and in the mind of God, each believer, each child of God who knows themselves now to be in a position of relationship with the Lord Jesus is a servant, is a minister is in the Christian ministry. And how do we get in the Christian ministry? <clears throat> Each one of us, as we read in 1 Peter and in 1 Corinthians, is given a gift or gifts. We're given a certain thing that we never had before. We knew the Lord Jesus. It might take us a while to be aware of it. We might never really be too much aware of it. And I suppose it's not good to be uh, occupied with oneself in any way. But <clears throat> each one of us is given a gift. A given a, a certain uh, a certain thing which enables us to do something that the Lord would have us to do. It's not something we just had by birth. It's not just a natural ability. It's something different. Because after all, the church of God is a very unique and strange sphere. It's a place where God wants to look down and see only that which is of Christ. All that we once were by nature as children of Adam. God sees that as totally set aside. He sees us now as new creatures in Christ. He sees us as something we never were or never could have been. And what is supposed to happen now, now what? What is supposed to happen? We know we have needs. We need to be encouraged. We need to be taught. We need to be corrected. We need all kinds of things. What's our resource going to be to have these things happen? Are we going to go, as it were, to the old man and sort of dust off? Well, we'll a certain uh, sense of humor or a jolly fellow and we're going to resurrect these old uh, traits that even natural men have and bring them into the assembly and sort of dust them off or something like that. <clears throat> totally unsuitable. But God has given, God has taken care of, and in Ephesians 4, when we get to that, we'll take that up a little bit, Lord willing, 
how God intends, what his purpose is, what the source is of what he intends to accomplish and how and all the rest. But it's important, I think, at the outset to realize that not just some of the Lord's people are ministers, not just some of the Lord's people have gifts, but each child of God. The scripture, I I think that's very plain. The manifestation of the spirit is given to every man for the collective profit. And so you have a gift or gifts, at least one. And I might not know what it is, and you might be a little bit insensitive to what it is. But the scripture says you have it. And if you're before the Lord as to that and use that for the Lord's glory, you're going to help display what that head is in heaven. You're going to help each of God's other dear people in this world. You're going to be a blessing in this dark world as you function in your capacity and in your sphere, like we sometimes sing in that uh, children's hymn, you in your small corner and I in mine. Now, in Galatians 6, we read every man proving his own work, every man bearing his own burden. And just like each of the Levites, when the camp moved, each one had a particular task. And it may be to carry some small, little insignificant thing. Or it may have been to carry something that everybody could see and say, oh, I'd like to be the one who carried that. Whatever it may be, it's something that's committed to us individually. The manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man for common profit. And so each one of us has his burden to bear. Each one of us should realize that we're in the Christian ministry. You know, it was about the early years of the previous century when there was a great work of the Spirit of God, really a continuation, in some senses, of a, of a mighty work of the Spirit of God a couple centuries before that, when the Spirit of God graciously worked after centuries of darkness uh, to, to teach souls again that a person could be saved and know it, that they could know that they could have now eternal life, to have it, to know it, to enjoy it. And some of the simplest truths that all of the children here know recovered in a fresh way to children of God. And as the uh, time rolled on in the early part of the 1800s, there became a more and more of an exercise. God worked in a mighty way. And believers became aware of certain truths that just sort of appeared out of the word of God. And, And like anything we learn in scripture, we wonder how come we never could have seen it before. But one of the things that became uh, such an exercise in which uh, spread all over uh, uh, the civilized world uh, was that, you know, each one of the Lord, we're one body. Each one of us is a member of each other and of that risen head in heaven. And uh, each one of us is uh, is to function in our sphere according to the gift that God has given us. And there was a a real movement away from uh, a mixed multitude, which uh, men and, and women grew to to know as the church uh, with a, a national membership and a national church and an order of clergy and all the rest. And the idea of clergy and laity itself, why it didn't stand the test of Scripture. And so our brethren were, of course, castigated, these early ones. They were castigated, and publicly too, uh, for these strange notions they had uh, that a person didn't have to go and to be ordained in some special way and and earn some sort of a special degree in order to serve God and to minister amongst his people. And they became under attack, and in many, uh, I know many of us have books where you can uh, trace uh, much of the history of what some of these young men, uh, younger than myself, and it makes me marvel how some of these ones uh, were called upon of God to, to reply to and to be attacked in an ecclesiastical way by bishops and the powerful men of their day. And it was for many of the truths 
that we enjoy today and truths which I feel and I fear that are slipping away from our grasp and our understanding that we need to be reestablished in. And so every man bearing his own burden, each one of us fitted for the Christian ministry. You know, for the Jews, and I, I want to say this at the start, the Jews had a had a priesthood which the aim of that was to maintain them in a relationship that they had. Christian In Christianity, uh, there is a ministry which seeks, and I don't want to get ahead of ourselves here, but it seeks... The Christian ministry is is a is a it's the activity of the Spirit of God through His own, which has the the net result of making worshippers for the Father. When the Lord Jesus met that woman at the well of Sychar in John four, uh, He didn't say to her that the Father was seeking servants. He said to her that the Father was seeking worshippers. And I might say at the outset here that, you know, the subject we're taking up this afternoon is not a very high and lofty subject. There are much more exalted and loftier things uh, that we could take up this afternoon. The subject we've just touched upon of worship and of our priestly responsibilities are far more lofty than what we're going to take up today. And I think it should be borne in mind by everyone that ministry, the Levitical aspect of things that that we're taking up right now is subservient and secondary to the fact that each one of us as seen before God are priests and worshipers that's eternal that's the highest thing and that's what the father is seeking he seeks worshipers and ministry its aim and its purpose and if you and I are being ministered to uh, by our head in heaven through various means it's going to result in making us more full more happy uh, more worshipers with more liberty. That's the purpose. And so I think we should see that for what it is. Now, someone made the comment that that in Christianity, uh, ministry has to do with that in which we differ. And in each one of us as ministers, we differ. Each one of us is given different gifts. And each one of us is given, if we have similar gifts, we're given different measures and a different character to that gift. But in priesthood, you know, we're all priests, and that is a different thing. We all share that in common. And sometimes I think of it when we sit here Lord's Day morning together. You know, we all wear different colored clothes and different kind of clothes as we're all sitting here today. But I sometimes think of us, you know, as we sit around the Lord's table especially, though that doesn't have to be the only time. But as we sit there, I think of ourselves as a company of priests. And, uh, and how even though we all just look like plain old people, I really uh, to think what God has done, what God hath wrought to make us a company of priests as, uh, as we sit there and are occupied with that, uh, that occupation that's going to be eternal. I think it's good at the outset to point out that ministry is a secondary thing and that the highest thing in our eternal calling is worship, that in which we're all, in a certain sense, uh, the same and in which we don't differ. Let's turn now back to... Uh, to Romans chapter 12. <clears throat> Romans 12. Well, Romans 11 and verse 36. For of him and through him and to him are all things. 
to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith, or ministry, let us wait on our ministry, or he that teacheth on teaching, or he that exhorteth on exhortation, he that giveth, let him do it with simplicity, he that ruleth with diligence, he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. The motive for ministry ought to be a love for Christ. It ought to be a response of the heart rather than a sense of duty. But the fact that the Lord has committed each of us with a gift puts us into a relationship with him personally from which we are going to feel a sense of responsibility, a sense of duty. But really the motive ought to be love. And we see in so many touching examples uh, in in the Gospels in particular how when the Lord Jesus... Uh, dealt with souls and brought them into blessing. How there was that order of wanting to be with him and to be near him. And he instantly brought them into the liberty of being worshippers of himself. And then there was a natural desire to serve. Why in our readings recently in in the book of Acts, we read about the Philippian jailer. And uh, as soon as he was saved, there was the same hour of the night he took him and washed their stripes. There's a, there's a response flowing from a heart that's been touched uh, by grace. And so here, and it ought to be with every Christian minister, with every servant of the Lord, which each of us are, that it ought to be a motive of love for himself and love for his people. As we sang in that hymn, uh, our business now is with him and those that are his own. A love for Christ and his call. You know, we, we feel a weakness in our day, don't we? We just feel, and, and sometimes when you sit in a meeting, especially a meeting for ministry, and, and there's a long period of silence, and your tendency is to feel a little bit twitchy, you know, and uncomfortable. Well, I wonder if anybody's going to have anything. Well, that's good to feel that. I think maybe we could even use a little more of it to really feel what we are in our state before God. And God will come in for us. I think he'll even come in for us that very meeting. I've seen it done so many times. But, you know, the Lord has something for us in our weakness. He'll meet us in our weakness and provide for us. And we can be just as happy in the Lord and feel that we're serving him uh, in a way that is just acceptable to him in a day of weakness as in any other day. You think of Gideon in his time when the Midianites were just ravaging the, uh, the Israelites and taking their food and taking their animals and just leaving them so destitute and they were hiding themselves in caves and dens of the earth and sometimes I feel that the Midianites in this world 
are ravaging all of us as children of God, our time, our energies, and all the world and all of its entanglements and its, its aggressive way to take all of our strength. And we sometimes feel like we're in that kind of a day where we're just resorted to just, well, like with Gideon, he was threshing wheat by the winepress. And others perhaps have thoughts on that passage. For myself, I think, the winepress was a place where there should have been real joy. Because wine does speak of joy. And we're a place where there should have been the threshing out of that which would be for increase and joy. You know, you can live without wine. You can live without joy too. But you can't live without wheat. Without some kind of a staple like a grain or a wheat or corn or whatever. And there they were at the place where there could have been and perhaps should have been. That which speaks of joy. There was sustenance. There was sustenance. He was threshing wheat there. Thankful for it but it was a place where there should have been more. And so in Gideon's day, he was chosen to be one who would help deliver Israel from this situation. He looked upon himself and he said, like so many of the other of the Lord's servants in the scripture, oh, who am I? You know, almost to, to just laugh when you look at yourself and your own resources. But it was so touching to me, and I've often thought of this when I've been uh, asked to speak or to do something which I just feel so inadequate for and then the time finally comes around and you're so nervous that your stomach is in a big knot and you can't eat and you say to yourself again oh how do I get into these situations I'm never going to do this again and all this kind of thing and often that passage in Judges 6 comes to me go and this thy might have not I sent thee and so it's a wonderful thing we have our affections uh, touched uh, by the Lord Jesus himself and we have a call from him and our sufficiency has to come from him too. Whether it's big or little, we have no sufficiency in ourselves. And sometimes I've noticed in, 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 the, uh, in the church of God, in the assemblies, how sometimes we're like the Israelites. You know, we know we can't handle the big things, the big decisions, the big difficulties. We cast ourselves upon the Lord for those. And sometimes the little things come along. Oh, brother so-and-so, brother so-and-so, they'll go and handle that, or, well, we'll just take care of that this way, you know. And I, I've used the example, sometimes I should quit doing this, of, of something that comes to mind, which was just the purchase of a vacuum cleaner. And, uh, oh, you know, anybody knows how to buy a vacuum cleaner. Anybody probably doesn't know how to buy a vacuum cleaner, except when it has to do with the church of God. And then buying a vacuum cleaner is something that's a spiritual concern. And then you better not just send somebody out to buy a vacuum cleaner who knows a lot about vacuum cleaners. You better send somebody out who is faithful to Christ. Because I've seen a little thing like buying a vacuum cleaner turn into a major calamity for the Lord's people and uh, even for the surrounding environment. Now, that may sound kind of silly, but uh, it just goes to illustrate that we're in a scene of warfare. And there's a whole new and different set of principles and responsibilities and needs and gifts that come to play in the scene in which God has set us, in the church of God. It's a, it's a unique place. It's a unique sphere. And uh, I think sometimes we are so used to looking at each other as, as uh, just normal men and women that we forget uh, what a strange design God has wrought to put us into such a relationship with himself and with each other. And so here in Romans 12, the first thing mentioned in regard to Individual responsibility in regard to gifts given to each one of us is, number one, after, after uh, 
what we've mentioned as to the love of Christ and a call from Him, the response to that which has been seen and felt in the soul uh, in presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice, the next thing mentioned is not being conformed to this world. Uh, And then after that, not to have high thoughts of ourselves above what we ought to think. And this is something that we very much need. Some have called this verse or the reference to this truth Christian modesty. And you know, each one of us, and perhaps we'll get to this, each one of us is given gifts, but we're given a different measure. And each one of us needs to learn what our measure is and to seek to occupy the place that the Lord has for us within our measure. And certainly we want to be gracious and we will be gracious to one another. The more we seek to serve the Lord, the more humbling we'll humble we'll feel about the difficulties encountered and the more gracious we'll be towards one another. But, you know, we need to learn experientially or, or in the Lord's presence what our measure is and seek to confine ourselves to the measure that the Lord has committed, it, uh, committed to us. It may be a large measure. Brother X's may have a large measure of some particular gift. I may have a small one. And I'm not to say that because mine is smaller than his that mine ought to be neglected and say, oh, I can't preach like that or I can't pastor like he can. I can't visit people and have the effect on them in their sick bed like he can. Or I can't help like that person. So I shouldn't I should probably just, you know, not bother. No, that's not the right thought at all. On the other hand, there ought to be a sense of modesty. And to confine myself is the way many brethren have written upon this passage, to be exercised in my own soul, to confine myself to what the Lord has set before me. Because if I don't confine myself to what the Lord has set before me in my service, I'm going to serve in a capacity I'm not fitted for. And I'm going to go sort of out beyond things. And I'm going to get into difficulties. And I'm going to make myself a little bit troublesome to my brethren. And then they're going to have to suffer it or deal with me in some way. So we each one of us want to take care of business, so to speak, in our own souls and be before the Lord. Not that we despise what we have. If he's given it, it's precious to him. And he wants it discharged. And whether it was, uh, you know, ten talents or five, if there was faithfulness, why the reward was, enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. It's faithfulness, not success or quantity, but shall we say quality. Faithfulness, and that which was little even, that the Lord will reward in that day. And then in verse 4, as we have many members in one body and all members have not the same office or function, so we being many are one body in Christ and every one members one of another, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. Whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith and so on. Ministry, let us wait on our ministry. And so we have that set before us to be exercised as to what the Lord has committed. And to not to ignore it, you know, uh, take heed, uh, what does it say in Colossians 4? Just to flip over there a minute here. Verse 17, and say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which thou hast received in the Lord, that thou fulfill it. Take heed. This would not have been said if there was not a danger of failing to fulfill that which the Lord has committed to us. And in another place, Paul writes to Timothy and tells him not to neglect the gift that had been committed to him. Wouldn't need to be written if there wasn't a danger of you and I neglecting 
a special charge or responsibility that's been given to us. And it's kind of a sobering thought to me, and perhaps you've thought of it too, to become so occupied with earthly things, not with necessarily wrong or worldly things, but just to become occupied with the normal and right responsibilities of life, uh, that we can fail to... Uh, to uh, uh, to use the gifts and the and the and per, and respond uh, to that which has been committed to us in this short little while that we're here, that ought to exercise us. Ought to exercise us. Let's turn now over to Ephesians four. <clears throat> Now, in Romans 12, where we read, where it uses the word gifts, it refers to different abilities. I'm going to use the word ability, though that might not be the right word, but it refers to abilities like prophesying or teaching or serving or helping or something. But here in Ephesians 4, as many know, the persons themselves are looked upon as the gifts. And in the original, it's a different word. The person themselves, the pastor, the teacher, the apostle, they themselves are looked upon as a gift from the ascended Christ to the church of God, to men, really. So let's read from Ephesians 4 a little bit. And uh, verse 6, One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all, but unto every one of us, over and over again, it, it has this kind of language, unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ, Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive, and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might show all things. And he gave some apostles, you can ignore the commas here, he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come into the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking or holding the truth in love may grow up unto him in all things which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. <clears throat> the church is not the source of ministry. <clears throat> the head is. And you'll hear brethren say sometimes, you know, I've heard it for getting on to be some years now, and it's true that the church doesn't teach, she's taught. It's good to get hold of that. We're not a body or a committee that sits down and thinks out, well, what's proper Christian doctrine? What's orthodox? And write a book of doctrine or a book of dogma or something like that. No, God knows the truth. God is, Jesus himself has said, I am the truth. And it's all known to him. And he is the one who reveals it to us. Now, we don't figure it out, never could. We don't work it out. Doctrine is not contrary to what 
some of the religious systems think. It's not something that is evolving or that, you know, we'll have to look into that and see what, what the church thinks about that. There's none of that. No, the truth is something that is, it's God's truth and it's eternal. And it's called sometimes the faith. And we read about the faith which was once committed to the saints. It's been committed, the faith has, to the saints. And we have the privilege of passing it on one to another as saints, as saint to saint. We have the responsibility, don't we, to encourage each one the other, to help on each other. And uh, it's, it's so happy, you know, in the, in the assemblies of God to see the, all different ages, just like here today, from the oldest to the youngest. And uh, we're all different ages naturally, and we're different levels of growth spiritually. And uh, we have some strengths and weaknesses, and the other brother or sister will have the opposite strengths and weaknesses, and we help one another along. And we seek to maintain the truth as, as a collective entity. We seek to hold that which has been committed to us. That's the church's responsibility, to hold that which has been committed. But we didn't author it. We don't refine it. It's our privilege to hold it, to enjoy it, and to walk in it. You know, there's a lovely little passage in Titus which speaks of adorning the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. And I first saved and started reading through that. Adorn the doctrine. Adorn. Well, what does that mean? So my custom was and always to look up a word like that in just a plain old English dictionary first. You know, just for some help on what the word adorn meant. You know, I wasn't didn't even have a vines or something like that then. But I got some help. Adorn, to enhance the beauty of. And then it kind of clicked that by just walking in the truth, by being what the Lord wants me to be, whether anybody can see it or not, I'm adorning the doctrine just by walking in it. After all, how is it going to be displayed? You know, the woman is the glory of the man. This is a wonderful mystery. The woman is the glory of the man. The man is at the right hand of the majesty on high and coming soon again to the scene. But the woman, the bride, is his glory. And he's going to be admired in all them that believe. And it's wonderful to think of it that you and I have the privilege uh, to adorn the doctrine, to manifest uh, in perhaps ways that we're not even aware about uh, the glories and the beauties of Christ by by reading, by bowing to, by enjoying, and by living the things that we read of a practical nature in God's precious word. And so it's good to see that, that the church doesn't teach, she's taught. <clears throat> the Lord Jesus is the risen head of the church and we're members of his body. And just as <clears throat> salvation is a function of God and sovereignty, <clears throat> God sovereignly has chosen us before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. And sovereignly, God has decided to fit each one of us differently with different gifts and to send into this world, as we read uh, in verse 8. When he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive. He gave. He gave. No, we're not left and we find ourselves in a town and the Apostle Paul sweeps through and a bunch of us get saved. And then we're left looking at each other and say, well, you used to be good in school. Maybe you could teach us. Or you're kind of a warm-hearted type of a fellow. Maybe you could make sure that we don't get discouraged. No, we're not left to our resources that way. He gave. He gave. And the Lord sees to it that in his body there will be that which will take care of all our needs as far as nourishment 
and encouragement and teaching and instruction and correction and oversight and all those wonderful other necessary things. He gives and he supplies and he furnishes and it's a sovereign thing that he does. And he's not going to leave us here as orphans. He said he wouldn't. He sent the comforter. He sent the spirit of God and we have his word and he has raised up and will continue to raise up those who will be used of him in small ways or in bigger ways uh, to help on in this function. What's going on here in Ephesians 4? When I read this passage, so I go down this line in my Bible and up the other uh, side and down and read that as we just did, I, all, I almost always picture a mountain. And I picture a mountain and I, I, I just have a, sort of a vague picture in my mind of God of God's purpose being that we all might come into the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the fullness of the stature of Christ. And that's the peak of that mountain. And all of us were sort of plucked from here and there and everywhere, straying each one of us individually on sin's uh, dark mountain. And we've been plucked out of darkness and translated into the kingdom of the Son of His love. And it's His purpose now in a practical way to reproduce Christ in us through the Spirit of God indwelling. And, and so we're being pulled up, you might say, all different sides of the mountain. And we're being pulled up through all different means and instrumentalities. And one of those means is that he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. And therefore that end, therefore that end. It's not an end in itself, you know, to have a meeting. And we should be aware of that. You know, this is not entertainment. It's not the purpose this afternoon or in any any occasion for ministry. The purpose is not to have someone or some two or three brothers or in a reading meeting to have maybe more brothers than that to say some things to entertain us or anything like that. It's not the purpose. It's just to come together and to drive here and park our cars and have a meeting and hopefully have a nice time or enjoy something and then go home and then wait till the next time. There's a purpose in all of this that we should remember. And just as when the Lord Jesus went to the grave of Lazarus, he first said, take away the stone. They had a hard time with that, but they did it. And then as the, as the son of God there with, with life-giving power, he said, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth. Amazing. And that's what he's done to you and I. He's called us each by name and called us to come forth. And Lazarus comes forth not on this mountain peak in Ephesians 4, he didn't come forth in a practical way in the fullness of the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. He came forth bound head and foot in grave clothes. The Lord Jesus did not choose, though he could have. He could have chosen to say Lazarus come forth and had Lazarus come forth in a beautiful set of garments. But he didn't. He called Lazarus forth. Lazarus was dead and he called him forth and he gave him life. He quickened him or however way you want to say it. And there Lazarus was alive again from the dead. And the Lord Jesus, Son of God, God overall, blessed forever, has that power and still does. But then there's Lazarus standing there with all the grave clothes. And he says to them that stood by, loose him and let him go. And that is a process, dear brethren, that we're performing for each other. And hopefully will perform graciously, tenderly and faithfully for each other until the Lord comes. That's what we should seek to be doing at our reading meetings Friday night, at the meetings we have in the morning, Lord's Day, at the prayer meetings, if there's occasions <clears throat> for ministry or in prayer. Uh, if you invite me over to your house for dinner, 
or, or if we go to just get a pickup truck of wood or whatever we do together, we should remember that we have this responsibility for one another, to help one another along in our liberty. God has set us free. And we all, I suppose, have a lot more grave clothes on us than we sometimes realize. And the Lord Jesus, as I say, could, could speak those off of us and could have done it uh, for some of have been saved long 50 years ago. Could have done it 10 years ago. For more. However, but it's a, there is a practical line of things here that is ongoing. And he, he, you know, he uses us in this way to help one another along in our liberty. Because, you know, Lazarus, I'm sure, gave no resistance uh, to the removing of those grave clothes. And in type, I think of Lazarus as the new man, as the new creature that each one of us is in Christ. And we have a new nature, what we call a new nature, which is the very nature of Christ in the fact that it is sinless and it only wants to please God. First John speaks of this nature in particular. And all it wants to do is have the hindrances taken away. And it just wants to please God. And so there is this function ongoing. We don't have apostles in the sense that we read about it in this verse today. We don't have prophets in the same sense. We have them, I feel, in another sense today, but not in the sense here, because apostles and prophets did foundation work, and the foundation has been laid. But as we turn to 1 Corinthians, uh, we'll see perhaps some of these things in, in activity, these gifts functioning, and so on. Pastors, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, you know, we have them today. We're thankful for them. And each one of us has experienced the benefit of these things. You know, when when uh, uh, when Solomon was building the temple, he hired, contracted, you might say, certain workers to do certain things. And uh, uh, I think it was our late brother, Charles Stanley, who, when I was younger, I read, I can't remember what book it was, but it made a big impression on me how the building of that temple and how you would take a mighty cedar tree, one of those cedars of Lebanon up there, and some particular type of person, we might say, in type, the evangelist, why, he goes out there and he sees that big old tree and he's not impressed at all. And the evangelist goes out to some pillar of the community or to some mighty terrible character and he's not impressed at all either. And he knows that God's word is like a hammer and that the word of the Lord is sharper than a two-edged sword. And he tells that mighty cedar tree that, my friend, you need to be saved because in the sight of God, you're just one, one more filthy sinner. And so the evangelist, maybe not that time, and maybe not that particular one. Maybe it's somebody else here and somebody else a couple years later. And you might be the happy one to come along and, and give the last whack, so to speak. And that mighty cedar tree comes crashing down. And uh, another soul is brought in. And, uh, and then that tree, the branches are lopped off. And it's taken down to the river. And somebody has to do all that. And then they float it down, down the Mediterranean, right? They float it south along the... And somebody's got to bring it up out of the water. And somebody's got to take it up to Jerusalem. And somebody's got to saw it out. And somebody's got to be sure that it gets in its right place in that building. And then somebody makes sure that they can cover that with gold. And there it is, <clears throat> once a big mighty cedar, and now perfectly hidden, covering of gold in, in God's dwelling, in God's house. And so different functions, different ones were the hewers of wood. And different ones, you know, <clears throat> we read in the Gospels and the Epistles, uh, about different ones, different sisters, different brothers. We're not quite sure what they did. They had Mark for their minister. What did Mark do? I don't know what Mark did. I don't know if he preached. 
But I know that when they went out there to cut those big cedar trees in the days of Solomon, that they didn't all cut. Some of them went to haul water and to, to make provision. You know, in a, in a hunting, in a logging camp, there's a lot of people that go up there to work that never touch a chainsaw. They go up there to, to just to help the others in the work, to cook and to take care of all the other necessities. Well, there's all different functions. Well, there are helps. And there are those that do the cutting and that there are those who, who twitch the mouth and a little little work or a great work, but it's all done. And it all has the effect of taking each one of us. We've experienced this, each one of us. Uh, we've experienced the help of others. An evangelist, perhaps, uh, of, uh, of pastors and teachers and in a, perhaps a certain sense of the prophets. <clears throat> Let's turn now to uh, 1 Corinthians 12. Verse 6, again. And there are diversities of operations, but it is the same God which worketh all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another the gifts of healing by the same Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, discerning of spirits. To another, diverse kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. But all these worketh that one and the selfsame spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will. For as the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is the Christ. For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many, and so on. And then down to verse 27. Now ye are the body of Christ, and members in particular. And God hath set some in the church, first apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, Governments, diversities of tongues, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, are all workers of miracles, have all the gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret, but covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet show I unto you a more excellent way. <clears throat> the questions raised by the apostle at the end of the chapter, I would assume we all understand are rhetorical. <clears throat> In other words, the question is asked as a statement. When it says, have all the gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret? The question is asked because it's obvious that we all don't have those gifts. We all don't. And it adds emphasis to the fact that in sovereign, according to his sovereign choice, he has set us in the body as it hath pleased him. And it's been said that in 1 Corinthians 12, we have the machinery there. In chapter 13, we have the very necessary uh, reminder that machinery won't work uh, without some sort of a special lubricant or oil. And in chapter 14, we have the machinery functioning. And so the assembly is, a, as, as I was saying before, it's a unique place. Uh, think of it, how strange ministry is. Think of the audacity of one human being uh, uh, saying that they can tell someone else how to improve their life. Or think of someone standing up here and saying, 
I have a message from God for thee. This is solemn. You know, we read in 1 Peter 4, but we didn't read the 11th verse. If any man speak, let him speak as an oracle of God. That's solemn. That doesn't mean that we stand up in the assembly of God if we're a brother and have something on our heart and just feel that, well, as long as it's not unscriptural, that's fine. It's more than that. There ought to be a sense. There should be a sense on an occasion like that. When a brother sits there in a quandary saying, with a burden and looking to the Lord, shall I say this or shall I not? I can't, I shouldn't, I must, all this kind of thing. And so that when the brother does stand up and lays his burden out before the others, there should be a real sense that this is from the Lord. There should be a sense. And that brings up a little practical comment. Or, you know, we read in Romans 12 about waiting. He that ministers, let him wait on his ministry. And dear brethren, don't all of us, especially brothers, need more grace to learn to wait. I'm so thankful that that when I was first saved and, and uh, brought to the place where the saints met together, where two or three were gathered to the Lord's name, that there was such weakness there in that particular place, such felt weakness, that there had to be a lot of waiting but it taught me some very, very deep and precious lessons. It taught me that the Lord will provide in matter, no matter what kind of weakness there is if there's an honest waiting upon Him. And it taught me that it's far better uh, for an hour meeting to sit and wait for 35 or 40 minutes, and sometimes we did that, to have 15 or 10 refreshing, edifying minutes at the very end. And two, you know, we spoke about different capacities, different gifts, and there is a development in gift. And there is a measure to give. And an older brother or someone who is more used to being used of the Lord, uh, there may be a particular tendency uh, to, uh, to speak quicker. But the poor young brother that's sitting there with his knees banging together and uh, looking to the Lord for grace and, and in a big quandary as to whether he has the Lord's mind or not, he's going to need some time. He's going to need some time to get courage from the Lord to stand up and to spread out before the saints what's on his heart. And where there is that time and that sensitivity to one another to wait upon the Lord, all of us will be the better for it. And we'll have what the Lord has for us, uh, sometimes from a, a direction or from a brother that we normally, uh, we may not even know. But that brother had those exercises or those burdens and, uh, and we'll, be, we'll be blessed. We'll have what the Lord wants, to, wants us to have. <clears throat> I'd like to turn back now to first, Second Samuel 18. Only if the brethren will bear with me for a few minutes. As I mentioned earlier, there seems to me to be an increased exercise about the profitable use of time for ministry. Maybe not so much in the local assembly, <clears throat> but when we come together in larger numbers and some of the dear saints of God who come from places where there are literally two or three, literally two or three gathered to the Lord's name, and it may be one of their only occasions that year to hear ministry from the Lord with uh, the Lord in the midst and all his people waiting upon him and what expectations are there to have something from the Lord? And I can remember myself in earlier years being in somewhat similar situation and driving, you know, a day and a half, literally, 
uh, just to be where the Lord's people were and where they would be ministering and just praying so earnestly before the Lord that there would be that which would give the needed encouragement and refreshment to go on in the path. <clears throat> ministry is, is a precious thing. Ministry in the assembly now, which is what I'd like to direct my comments to at the very end, and we should notice, we should remember that a lot of ministry doesn't take place in the assembly, uh, in, in the church of God as it's meeting together in assembly. The evangelist often, or I should say most often, does his work out in the regions beyond, out in the shopping malls or out in the out on the uh, wharfs or on the ships or in the trains or at the schools or at the factory or the office or whatever, wherever else they call. They seem to have a knack for where to go. And oftentimes, <clears throat> that is where they do their work. And so too, maybe especially with younger ones who find that they have a, a gift from the Lord in teaching or pastoring, the pastor, why he goes out and seeks the saints out where they are. Uh, the ones that have strayed, the ones that are discouraged, uh, the ones that live a long way off, the ones that haven't been seen in a long time. And two, with teaching, you know, uh, there are uh, all of us are at different ages and levels of growth. And though you may not be uh, uh, perhaps uh, fitted in such a way at this time to be able to minister to most of the saints, why, you know, the Lord may be fitting you and have already fitted you to be of a real help uh, to those that you frequent with at the factory or at work or in the school and so on. So it's good to remember that a lot of these different gifts that we have are not gifts that have to do with any kind of public service. Uh, you know, it may be something as as, uh, as simple and as unknown as, as, uh, as faith. Well, one was faith. You know, well, we all have faith. But the faith spoken of in Romans 12 is the kind of faith that we all don't have. Well, that's not a, necessarily something seen publicly or experienced in the assembly. And there are those gifts and Perhaps we should not have skipped over it, but in 1 Corinthians 12, there was a warning given for the foot not to despise its place of being a foot and say, because I'm not the eye or the ear, you know, I'm not of the body. No, you shouldn't say that. And, con and, and vice versa, the eye, the eye cannot say, it's more emphatic, the eye cannot say. That is, the more prominent servant is not to say uh, to that servant who has a less public or a less displayed uh, function that because it is not an eye, it has no function. So I, I don't mean to give the impression that all ministry is ministry as we often think of it, public, uh, preaching, teaching, and so on in the assembly. <clears throat> but I, I just in the next few moments like to touch on something that affects the Lord's people very much, and that is ministry in the assembly. In first, Second Samuel 18, we have an occasion here starting with verse 19. <clears throat> After... King David's son Absalom uh, was killed. And Joab, old wily Joab, he, uh, the captain of David's host, he's going to send Ahimahaz, excuse me, he's going to send Cushy with tidings to the king from the battlefield back to where the king was. And the sending of tidings, I, I, I take it that that was a sort of a trade or a function that someone did. He was a bearer of tidings. And they were known for that and they did that. And so in Second Samuel 18 and verse 19, then said Ahimeaz, the son of Zadok, let me now run and bear the king tidings, how that the Lord hath avenged him of his enemies. And Joab said unto him, thou shalt not bear tidings this day, but thou shalt bear tidings another day. But this day thou shalt bear no tidings because the king's son is dead. Then said Joab to Cushy, Go tell the king what thou hast seen. 
And Cushi bowed himself unto Joab and ran. Then said Ahimeaz, the son of Zadok, yet again to Joab, But howsoever let me, I pray thee, also run after Cushi. And Joab said, Wherefore wilt thou run, my son, seeing thou hast no tidings ready? But howsoever said he, Let me run. And he said unto him, Run. Then Ahimeaz ran by the way of the plain and overran Cushi. And David sat between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof over the gate unto the wall, and lifted up his eyes, and looked, and behold, a man running alone. And the watchman cried and told the king, and the king said, If he be alone, there is tidings in his mouth. And he came apace and drew near, and so on. Let's pass down for the sake of time. <clears throat> down to verse uh, 28. Ahimeaz called and said unto the king, All is well. And he fell down to the earth upon his face before the king. And said, Blessed be the Lord thy God, which hath delivered up the men that lifted up their hand against my lord the king. And the king said, Is the young man Absalom safe? And Ahimeaz answered, When Joab sent the king's servant, and me thy servant, I saw a great tumult, but I knew not what it was. And the king said unto him, Turn aside and stand here. And he turned aside and stood still, and behold, Cushy came. <clears throat> Cushy was the one who had been sent in the first place. <clears throat> he was a little slower. And Cushy said, Tidings, my lord the king, for the Lord hath avenged thee this day of all them that rose up against thee. And the king said unto Cushy, Is the young man Absalom safe? And Cushy answered, The enemies of my lord the king, and all that rise against thee to do thee hurt, be as that young man is. And the king was much moved, and went up to the chamber over the gate, and wept. Here we have two runners, both of them runners. Ahimeaz wasn't volunteering to do something that wasn't in his normal line of, of work or function. <clears throat> but it was not a suited time for that particular runner to run with those tidings. I don't know. I don't understand much about this, but maybe there were runners who always ran with glad tidings and other runners were chosen for bad tidings. I don't know. But a point I would use this passage to illustrate is that the Lord had a certain messenger to carry a certain message. And though through his own desire or his own haste, Ahimeaz just plain wanted to run, why it turns out that even though he had more zeal and he got there first and all the rest, there was no effect in his message. He was just told, turn aside. We'll just have to wait. <clears throat> turn aside. When Cushy came, who was, in this case, the Lord's messenger, why Cushy, when he delivered his message so simply, why there was a great effect upon the king. The king as it says here, was much moved. And brethren, <clears throat> uh, I feel very much that we all of us need to be exercised as to waiting upon the Lord for the Lord's message to be sent to us. And if <clears throat> you or I happen to be runners, uh, we need to be exercised that <clears throat> though just because we're a runner or just because we can speak or just because we know some things about Scripture or enjoyed something yesterday, doesn't mean that we're going to be the Lord's message, messenger for that day to deliver a certain message. But the effect of ministry ought always to be to accomplish that which the Lord intends. We certainly want to make room for one another's mistakes. But a persistent course of running without being sent is certainly a trial and a weariness to the saints. And as we said earlier in, in regard to uh, the passage in Romans, we need to each of us be exercised to confine ourselves to that sphere which the Lord has fitted us for. It's a great disservice, you know, to a man.